True reports. The 10 judges were arrested almost a year ago and have been held incommunicado since then. Six of those detained were former judges at the Specialised Criminal Court, which deals with cases of alleged terrorism and is where their case is now being heard. The four others were members of Saudi Arabia's Supreme Court. The Dawn Group says that one of them convicted the prominent women's rights activist Lujain al-Hathlul, while another sentenced many of those put to death in a mass execution last year. But Dawn quotes a source with knowledge of the trial, saying they signed confessions that they'd been too lenient. President Emmanuel Macron says France will transform its military bases in Africa into academies, co-run with local troops. Mr Macron was speaking ahead of a four-nation tour of Africa. Here's the BBC's Mary Harper. France has been bruised by fierce criticism from countries in the Sahel, which accuse it of failing to control the ever-growing spread of Islamist militancy. French flags have been burned and French troops have pulled out of Mali and Burkina Faso. Mr Macron attempted to placate former colonies by talking about partnerships with African militaries and allowing Africans to define the rules. But he had strong words for Russian soldiers of fortune who've stepped in to replace French troops. He described the Wagner mercenary group as the life insurance of failing African governments who would sow nothing but misery. And the US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has met Ukrainian leaders on an unannounced visit to Kyiv. Announcing Washington's latest transfer of financial aid, she said underpinning an effective government was essential to maintaining Ukraine's ability to withstand Russian aggression. She repeated the message President Biden made there last week, that Washington would stand with Ukraine as long as it took to win the war. And that's the news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 805 in Hong Kong. I'm Andrew Work, and this is Money Talk. Uh, welcome to day two of our new format. So brace yourself for a full hour of Money Talk action. Asia stocks continued the week-long global slide, but might do better today if it continues to follow the example set by the Europe and the US. The major American and European bursts were finally on the mend and finished up on the day. The U.S. Treasury Secretary popped into Kiev in the Ukraine yesterday for a surprise visit that outlined the Biden administration's resolve in spending money to support Ukraine. In other news, Britain and the EU found common ground on trade with Northern Ireland. Finally, the Indian conglomerate Adani is still the bad news bear, but at least it isn't the cocaine bear, which is nipping at the box office results of Disney slash Marvel's Quantumania. And Canada has had the last dance with ByteDance following its American and European counterparts. Now, on Tuesday's Money Talk, today we're going to be joined by Alex Wong, who is the director at Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management, and Patrick Bennett, a macro strategist at CIBC World Markets, to give us the lowdown on what's going down. And after the news, we'll have a quick live market update, and then Carolyn Wright will ask, which is better, a bird in the hand or two in tomorrow's bush? She's speaking to Stephanie Lung, Chief Investment Officer, Stashaway, and asking why so many people are saving too much and investing too little. Close at 8.45, we'll say konnichiwa to William Pesek, our fave Tokyo-based journalist and author who will give us the view from Japan. So this is your show, so make your voice heard. Contact us at moneytalk at rthk.hk 
Uh, hit us on Facebook, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3, or you can uh, get active on our Twitter account, which is uh, at Money Talk at Radio 3. Uh, we're going to the news right now and uh, a little bit more in-depth on the headlines. British Prime Minister Richie Sunak on Monday signed a new trade deal with the European Union designed to remedy problems caused by the Northern Ireland Protocol. The British pound jumped on the news that trucks will flow on goods to Northern Ireland as long as the goods on board will not go to the Big Island. The euro also rose as Northern Ireland became a little more like Britain's Hong Kong to Europe. The trade deal includes scrapping a customs requirement between the mainland Britain and Northern Ireland, while a key clause gives the Northern Ireland Assembly an emergency break on changes to EU goods rules. The announcement follows a meeting outside London between the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. We want the best solution for the people of Northern Ireland in the situation that we have right now. So there was a very constructive attitude from the very beginning to solve problems, to find solutions, practical solutions for everyday life of the people and businesses in Northern Ireland. That's what we've done. And we've jointly developed the solutions. It needed a lot of goodwill and knowledge, and we have jointly agreed on that now. So I'm very happy about the agreement that we found with the Windsor framework. And Indian mega conglomerate Adani's bad news continues as J.P. Morgan's ESG fund dumps the company's shares. Investor BlackRock and the MSCI index are keeping their powder dry vis-a-vis Adani's ESG status. Adani has been fighting off claims of sketchy G4 governance since Hindenburg Research torched its reputation in a fiery report in late January claiming accounting and governance shenanigans. And bye-bye ByteDance. The Canadian government bans TikTok from government phones and smartphones following their U.S. and EU counterparts. Uh, locally, Hong Kong exports fell 36.7% last month from January 2022. It's the biggest percentage drop since records began in 1953 and marks a ninth straight month of declining trade. Over in Pakistan, where the economic crisis continues, the country is swiftly running out of foreign reserves as negotiations continue with the International Monetary Fund. Pakistan is waiting to receive a billion U.S. dollars in bailout funding. Those funds were promised in an agreement dating back to 2019. The full sum adds up to about $6.5 billion. In line with previous agreements, the government has adopted a string of measures to boost its finances, such as cutting subsidies and raising taxes. However, there are concerns that new measures could make life even more difficult for millions of Pakistanis living below the poverty line. Mutaza Sayed, former acting governor of the country's central bank and a former IMF official, says times are already tough. The situation is very bad. Pakistan is caught in the crosshairs of a perfect storm. We are facing perhaps our worst economic crisis in our 75-year history. Growth is tanking, poverty is on the rise, inflation is running at about 30% a 50-year high, food insecurity is acute, the currency has plummeted this year, one of the worst performing currencies in the world, and our reserves are at all-time, very near all-time lows. We're finding it very difficult to pay for our imports and to service our external debt. At the same time, our public external debt has also gone up quite dramatically. So the situation is quite bad where Pakistan is in dire straits. The causes of this are both external. Uh, you've got the Fed tightening like uh, uh, never before. You've got a global commodity super cycle, and you've also got uh, a US dollar rally. But domestically as well, Pakistan has uh, not done the right things. 
We've had political polarization. We've had policy paralysis. We've had delays with the IMF. And of course, last summer, we had some very devastating floods. But the good news is that we seem to be very close to reaching uh, an agreement with the IMF on the next review. The government sa- has said that it'll do whatever it takes. It's passed a very difficult mini-budget with tax increases. It's raised fuel and electricity prices. So my expectation is that we should have an agreement with the IMF fairly soon, and that'll unlock the next uh, tranche of about a billion dollars that we desperately need from the IMF. We desperately need an IMF bailout, and I believe we also desperately need uh, a debt restructuring in Pakistan. And that's your market update. Get ready for the markets. All right, people, time for market updates. Uh, America was on the mend with major bourses up reversing a long slide. The S&P 500 index climbed 0.3%, while the Dow Jones picked up 0.22%. The tech bros at NASDAQ should be happy with a 0.6% rise. Railroad operator Union Pacific jumped 10% after their CEO, Lance Fritz, announced he would step down. Quite a kick in the caboose for Mr. Fritz. Hoy. The TSX in Toronto climbed 0.2%, led by auto parts maker UniSelect up over 16% on takeover news in a $2 billion deal. Uh, the bank of one of our guests today, CIBC, reported its capital markets division up revenue by 14% in the last quarter of 2022, with annual trading revenue up 17%. Nice work, Canucks. Shares rose almost 2% on the news. In Europe, the good news continued with the stock 600 index up more than 1% to hit 462 and change. The uh, FTSE was a bit of a laggard, rising only 0.72%. The DAX beat a 1% rise. Le CAC 40 beat 1.5%. And mamma mia, the Italian FTSE was up 1.7%. Travel and leisure was the top sector, while Commerce Bank's triumphant return to the DAX saw it jump over 5% on trading. On our side of the world, uh, the Monday hangover was still in play. The Nikkei 225 dropped 0.11% with heavy hitters in chemicals, steel, and other heavy industrials carrying the show up, while tech and video game companies like SoftBank, Konami, and Nintendo bombed. Uh, Shanghai and Hong Kong's major indices were both down 0.3%, and the Shenzhen component dropped 0.73%. Locally in Hong Kong, leaders included New World Development and Budweiser Brewing APAC and Link REIT, while China Unicom and BYD led the losers. The Kospi was down 0.9% and the ASX more than 1%. Looking at commodities, Brent crude oil dropped a percent to $82 a barrel, but natural gas jumped over 7%. Gold was up almost 0.4%, but silver dropped over 1.2%. Uh, some of my other faves to watch saw copper up 1.5% and platinum and palladium up 3.5%. Bonds, uh, the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond yields were down, along with German, British, and French equivalents, with only the Japanese 10-year bond rising. Looking at currencies, uh, the dollar lost ground against the Canadian loonie as well as Asian and European currencies yesterday. Especially the British pound was up on the back of the settling of the Irish border train issue with the U.S. Looking at Bitcoin, it's down to 24-hour trading by more than a percent, but uh, looks like it might be trending up today. Ethereum is trending about the same, but other major coins like Ripple's XRP and Cardano are down 5.6 and 10.5%. Ouch. Quick look on the region. The ASX 200 is looking good, uh, trending upwards right now. And we're just waiting for the Japanese and the Koreans to get going. Your Hang Seng Futures Index suggests that things are going to be improving today. So we're going to be uh, looking forward to that one.
All right, welcome back, and I'd like to introduce our guests for today. It's uh, Tuesday No Tacos guests. We've got uh, Alex Wong, Director of Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management. Good morning, Alex. How are you doing? Hi, good morning. Hi. Good morning. We've also got with us Patrick Bennett, who's a macro strategist at CIBC World Markets. Good morning. Good morning, Andrew. Uh, gentlemen, uh, lots of news coming at us from all quarters today, uh, kicking off with the EU-Britain trade deal on Northern Ireland. Uh, I mean, this is going to settle, hopefully settle some things for a little while, but what, what's your take on, on what this means for the European trade? Look, I think it's, it's, uh, it's only positive, isn't it? Um, you know, we've had so many years... Uh, you know, since the Brexit vote and so much uncertainty, which has uh, which has continued on uh, you know, during that time, so anything which brings us uh, closer to uh, you know some agreement, uh, uh, some uh, you know steady as it goes, uh, is is positive, and we've seen that reflected already in this in the currency overnight, and we expect there's a little bit more to come. Do you think it's going to be a quick bounce, or is this going to have an enduring effect on the markets? Oh, look, I think it can have an enduring effect. Um, the the pound has been uh, somewhat of an underperformer for you know quite some time. The economy has been, you know, facing uh, challenges from higher inflation and higher interest rates. Uh, to have some good news injected, which was not expected, uh, I think will will play quite strongly. Okay, Alex, uh, your take on this is this is this going to be a just a little bit of a fillip, or was there an, was there an underlying drag on the market that is going to be removed? Well, I think this is an additional uh, new positive catalyst. So I think it would uh, help the market for 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 a bit longer. I think. Okay, uh, and and how about the pound, Alex? What do you what do you figure? I mean, is this something that uh, will this kind of put it on an upwards trajectory, or are there too many other factors in play? Uh, there are still. Too many factors. I think uh, people are not really, really confident about the pounds. So I think uh, it needs time to restore. But uh, since uh, we, we we are at a relatively low level, I think there will still some room to recover. Okay. Are there specific sectors that will benefit from the settlement of this if we were picking mm-hmm. our stocks? I think uh, if you want to go for specific sectors, probably the local one. I think because of, if you look at the FTSE, actually those are... Uh, Companies doing uh, business with other parts of the world actually is, uh, are the strongest. So probably those are local ones. I think will help, and of course, I think uh, financials uh, would always be uh, the beneficiaries. Okay, I mean, uh, one of the results of this, the pound is up, which means that for those of you that have properties there or kids in school, everything just got a little more expensive. Um, where the U.S. dollar go, Hong Kongers are very interested. Uh, Patrick, uh, you know, where do you see the U.S. dollar going on the back of this? And if you want to bring interest rates into the discussion. Sure. Yeah, look, sure thing. Look, it's been an interesting uh, start to the year in that uh, the dollar was quite heavy during th- uh, through January. Uh, the market at that time uh, trying to uh, anticipate when the Federal Reserve would stop raising rates and perhaps start cutting them later in the year. Uh, and February has seen the dollar uh, bounce back quite strongly. Uh, that's been on the back of some, you know, some good data, some very strong economic data, and we believe, uh, you know, on the back of the, the Fed or the back of the market, rather, uh, quite rightly, uh, now you know, repricing what they expect for interest rates. We expect interest rates to be higher for longer. Uh, we don't see any easing in rates this year, which is not great for for global or, or domestic activity. But uh, we see the dollar staying a little bit stronger uh, for somewhat longer. Uh, notwithstanding that, I think this year is. Probably a year which is going to be more sideways or choppy trading rather than a, a strong trending one. But certainly for the moment, we expect the dollar to be uh, in the ascendant for the next uh, month or two. Anybody else trailing in its wake? Uh, any any other strong, or is everybody going to fall before the mighty greenback? Well, look, Canada does uh, Canada does relatively well. Um, you know, Canada's uh, leverage to the U.S. economy is 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 quite clear and uh, you know undoubted. 
Uh, and perhaps in some contrast on the interest rate front, uh, the fact that Bank of Canada is now able to, uh, we think, keep rates on hold uh, just allows the economy a little bit of uh, a little bit of breathing room. So, yeah, Canada is one of our uh, we pick as a, a outperforming currencies uh, outside of the dollar. Uh, and we like being long of that, uh, you know, against some of the uh, Antipodeans, against the Australian and New Zealand dollar is one of our, our favourite trades at the moment. Oh, interesting. Alex, uh, you, are you aligned with that or are you going to take a contrarian view? No, I'm right with that. I think it's not a problem. May, maybe may have a firm bias, but not, not, may not go much higher. So I think uh, this year probably would be just um, sideways and choppy, probably. Uh, if you look at Asia, probably Singapore would be the one uh, which is a little bit interesting because you look at Sing dollar actually is quite strong against the dollar. Uh, if you look at it in, uh, with a um, three to five year horizon, actually Sing dollar actually is quite interesting. Okay. Uh, one uh, country that you guys haven't mentioned or brought in is India. I mean, everybody in India is consumed right now with the story uh, about Adani. And uh, kind of the overnight news was that JP, JP Morgan has uh, dropped Adani from their ESG uh, funds. And I mean, usually people think ESG, they mostly focus on the environmental part. But I mean, this is bringing governance into the spotlight. Uh, I mean, of course, there's been a lot of bad news on that front for, for Adani, but do you, does that, what does that tell you about the broader Indian market? Uh, for the broader Indian market, I think uh, it probably made underperform because in the past two years, actually, India uh, gained at the expense of China uh, within the major indices. And if China does rebound this year, probably may see some fun outflows from, from India to going back into, into, into China. So that is a one thing, uh, already happening, I think. And then, uh, the Adani things actually are also hurt confidence. And, and actually India is not cheap. But in the long term, of course, India is a young and, uh, and, and, and developing country. So I think, uh, the long term story may still remain intact, but I think that it would be correcting the overpricing situations, uh, because of the, um, uh, weakness in China over the last two years. Yeah, Patrick, I mean, uh, you know, when, when people started, you know, calling Chinese uh, companies accounting into question, it, it kind of sparked off a firestorm that's gone on for years now. And it started in this, you know, it started in the same in the same way with I think it was Muddy Waters at the time starting to call out firms. Uh, but, you know, I mean, this has been an ongoing thing. Uh, how about for India? Yeah, look, absolutely. And I, I don't think we're uh, at the end of it now. I would say as a more general observation, I think we're seeing a, a lot of companies uh, around the planet, uh, you know, under pressure on the back of uh, higher funding costs, you know, even before we start to, uh, you know, have these companies drill down into their uh, their ESG credentials. Uh, India as a, you know, as a whole, there's been a... Uh, a multi-year or, or perhaps multi-decade uh, almost desire or, or, or push for investors to to try and tap into the undoubted growth potential uh, in the economy. But, uh, you know, to date has, has come up short. Uh, you know, we still think there's challenges there. You know, the, the fiscal uh, fiscal current, uh, current trade account deficits, uh, the currency has, uh, has underperformed. Uh, which on one hand uh, does give a, a better entry level to, to investors there, but yeah, it's a, it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult road. We always say it's about uh, opportunity at the right level. Uh, if we saw higher interest rates in, in India, and we expect we will, uh, that gives the currency some support. Perhaps there's a, a better entry point to uh, uh, to trades with the currency being at these levels. But yeah, it's a, it's a tough road, and uh, you know, I think that some of the uh, you know some of the gains will be uh, will continue to be very hard won. 
I mean, I think something that's maybe a little different is a lot of the Chinese companies were listed on the American stock market, which gave American regulators leverage to go back and demand changes in, in accessibility to their books. Uh, I mean, does that same sort of relationship exist with India? I don't, I don't think there's a lot of Indian companies listed on American or British exchanges. Not to my knowledge, no, but I, I think what the, uh, the issue is now is uh, perhaps in the last few years we've, we've traded a lot of or, you know, investors have been able uh, and, and successfully able to trade uh, more indices because, you know, global markets or markets have been moving you know, somewhat in lockstep, indices have been moving somewhat in lockstep. Uh, and now we move into a year uh, or a year or two years ahead, we believe, where, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, more sideways, more choppy trade, where it's going to be a, you know, a, a, a question of picking you know, sectors and drilling down even deeper into that rather than the indices. So I think it's become a, a more difficult investing environment and one where... Uh, you know, speaking to your advisors is probably uh, is going to is going to pay 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 uh, is going to pay dividends. All right, gentlemen. Uh, coming back to the motherland, a uh, new study from the American Chamber of Commerce in China, I believe, suggesting that uh, investment uh, in in mainland China by foreign firms might be slowing down a little bit. Uh, what what are your thoughts on where China's going this week? Uh, I think uh, China actually is uh, much weaker than expected uh, over the last few weeks because of the uh, weakness in major tax. And I think uh, it still may continue because uh, we have uh, still um, very huge selling by major foreign investors into uh, one or two names and uh, major names in Hong Kong because uh, Tencent actually was still being got reduced by its major shareholders. So I think uh, people are now focusing on more the, more the share supply and there, there's not much of fresh cat, positive catalyst coming out. So we may still see a tech lag uh, uh, weakness in, in, in China markets. Yeah, Patrick? Yeah, look, I think from an economic point of view, and we're going to get uh, PMI data out uh, what uh, tomorrow, uh, you know, our view is that the economy, you know, the recovery in the economy is going to be quite uneven. Uh, there was a, a, a tremendous amount of confidence uh, baked into the market in the first few weeks of this year uh, of China's emergence from from zero COVID, and I think you know, reality is starting to to bite a little bit more. That, as I say, it's not going to be it's not going to be just one way uh, you know, one way up. It's going to be uneven. Uh, I think if we uh, lay that over the fact that global demand uh, is somewhat challenged, uh, will continue to be through uh, through higher global interest rates. Uh, I saw a report last week of uh, a glut of containers in the uh, in the, in the southern ports in China, uh, suggesting their export orders have been quite soft. So, yeah, while we have while we retain a medium term confidence, our uh, you know our short term fear is that. Uh, yeah, that confidence has been overpriced, so we're we're taking a very cautious uh, stance at this point. Yeah, I mean the situation with the the uh, the oversupply of containers in Chinese ports. I mean, this is you know what a dramatic turnaround from a, a year ago when it, you know it seemed like supply chains were snarled up, nobody could get containers. People trying to move out of Hong Kong were, you know, being told it was going to cost astronomical amounts of money to move their goods out if they could even get a container uh you know where do we go from here on the on the trade front well as i say your containers and people building houses out of them around the world previously but not but not now yeah look I, and i think we saw that in the hong kong uh, trade numbers too didn't we you know they're very what 36 percent drop the you know the biggest since uh, since records began and uh, i think this is the unappreciated uh, impact of higher global interest rates that uh, you know consumers are, are feeling the pinch around the globe and are going are going to be buying uh, 
you know, less goods. Um, non-discretionary spending is, uh, you know, has to continue, and discretionary spending will, uh, you know, will, uh, you know, will face these challenges. So the outlook for global growth, we believe, is uh, you know, a little bit softer than uh, than sometimes the market has. Uh, you know, has presumed uh, in the first few weeks of the year. Well, I hear what you're saying. The, the uh, you know, what looked like the indestructible American consumer seems to have, uh, ch- there are chinks in the armor now with the durable goods orders down, I think surprised a lot of people. Um, Alex, what, what's your take for the, uh, for the U.S. market and maybe how it plays back over here? I think the U.S. market actually uh, may not go much higher or lower. I, I think, uh, of course, a lot of depends on the uh, jobs data uh, to be released soon. So I think uh, probably may still um, a little bit downward pressure because yesterday's stabilization actually probably is caused by Tesla, uh, which would have a uh, investor day coming soon and people are probably are covering up or speculating on this one and let the um, tech sector high a little bit. But I think uh, generally I probably may, may still see some downside. Uh, okay, we've, we've been, and, and for that downside, I mean, how long do you see that uh, impact? We, we've been talking mostly mid and long term, but I mean, I'm, mm. I'm out for the rest of the week uh, on Money Talk. We've got a, we've got a, we've got a whole r- new hosts coming in every day. It's yeah. kind of a new format that we're working here. But uh, what can you tell our listeners for the, you know, what what you're kind of planning for the rest of this week? I think uh, you probably may focus on semiconductors or uh, banking stocks. I think uh, they probably are safer. So first of all, semi probably would be a benefit from the uh, development of AI. So I think that is a structural long-term growth story. But the software companies probably may not benefit much, and I think uh, people probably would still a bit a bit conscious uh, towards uh, the major tech ones as well. So And for the banking stocks, I think they would probably benefit from the uh, higher, higher interest rate environment and for a little bit longer. So I think the banking stocks probably would save a play. Okay, Patrick, final, final call. Uh, what are you watching this week? Uh, yeah, look, I think we're going to see some more outperformance of the Canadian and now the uh, the British the British pound. Uh, again, uh, I like those against the Australian and New Zealand dollars. Uh, we think they have both, you know, faced challenges from the slower global growth. Uh, so we'll continue with that, and I think there's some more uh, some more runway in, in both of those trades. All right, thank you very much to Alex Wong, Director Alex K. Y. Wong Asset Management, and Patrick Bennett, the macro macro strategist at CIBC. World Markets, much appreciated to have both of you on. And uh, still to come on the show is Carolyn Wright, joined by Stephanie Lung to take a look at why so many people save their money rather than investing it. After that, we'll be catching up with Tokyo-based author and journalist William Pesek with a view from Japan. We're going to be looking at a quick market update for you guys. The Nikkei is open and up. The Kospi, likewise, is on the is uh, showing green, uh, up about 0.8% already. And the ASX 200 is up uh, almost 0.6%. Your futures, uh, your Hang Seng futures index up 0.3% today, so it could be a good day today. Looking at the weather, mainly fine, cool in the morning, dry during the day. Uh, your temperature right now is 16 degrees Celsius. It's 76% humidity. And we're gearing up uh, for the news at 8.30 with our main man, Tom Harding. RTHK, it's 8.30. My name's Todd Harding. A medical expert has strongly recommended Hong Kong drop its mask mandate everywhere except in healthcare centres. 
Vijay Dana Sikaran, an associate professor from the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health, said the population here had had enough immunity from vaccinations and previous COVID infections. He told RTHK that Hong Kong needed to think about its COVID strategy going forward, such as when to vaccinate the population and improving public health care. This is going to be a long-term trouble uh, protecting the most vulnerable from COVID. As we've seen uh, during wave five, it was really the vulnerable who was the was actually the ones which were affected. And this is going to go on forever. So there has been a strong recommendation that we need to rehaul our public uh, healthcare system, including getting more doctors from elsewhere. And the government is looking into those things for the past few months. And I hope actually the government significantly expand our public health system. Otherwise, everything that the government wants the public to do, it's kind of a band-aid for some other reason. A Greenpeace campaigner has described the smuggling of e-waste as a deep-rooted problem in Hong Kong that will likely increase now that quarantine restrictions have been dropped. Chan Holshan said the activity traditionally was done by illegal workers and was a lucrative trade. She was commenting after Customs yesterday seized electronic waste worth about $12 million, which they suspect was being smuggled out of Hong Kong. Ms Chan told RTHK that consumers should always use licensed e-waste recyclers and she called for better regulation of brownfield sites. The brownfield sites are cheap and also they are very secretive, dotted all over Hong Kong's new territories. So when you have such kind of grey area for them to run their business there and maybe no one can ever found them out in this brownfield sites, then it is a good start for them to start their at least illegal business there. So actually we think how to have a good regulation on brownfield is one of the measures that can tackle the problem from the root. The British Prime Minister and the head of the European Commission have hailed a revised deal over a long-disputed part of the Brexit agreement as opening a new chapter in relations. Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen met to finalise the agreement over changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. The BBC's Jonathan Blake has more. In Windsor, Rishi Sunak and the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen claimed their agreement was an historic breakthrough that marked a turning point for Northern Ireland and UK-EU relations. The Prime Minister said it would ensure smooth trade, using green and red lanes to separate goods staying in Northern Ireland with those destined for the Republic of Ireland. Sovereignty would be restored, he said, with the so-called Stormont Break, which could stop new EU laws applying in Northern Ireland. Israel has deployed extra troops to the occupied West Bank after a Palestinian man was shot dead and Israeli settlers attacked Palestinian villages overnight, setting fire to houses and cars. The the BBC's Tom Bateman has more. Israeli settlers went on a rampage that lasted several hours. Palestinian residents told the BBC they were armed with iron bars and rocks and attacked property and torched homes. A 37-year-old Palestinian man was killed by Israeli gunfire. The rampage began after, hours earlier in the town, a Palestinian gunman shot dead two Israelis from a nearby settlement. Later, settlers called for a march in revenge. The Israeli army said it contained the violence, but human rights groups have long blamed an atmosphere of impunity surrounding many Israelis in the West Bank. Saudi activists say that prosecutors have charged 10 senior judges with high treason, which means they could face the death penalty. There's been no official confirmation or comment from the Saudi authorities. The BBC's Sebastian Usher reports. 
The 10 judges were arrested almost a year ago and have been held incommunicado since then. Six of those detained were former judges at the Specialised Criminal Court, which deals with cases of alleged terrorism and is where their case is now being heard. The four others were members of Saudi Arabia's Supreme Court. The Dawn Group says that one of them convicted the prominent women's rights activist Lujain al-Hathlul, while another sentenced many of those put to death in a mass execution last year. But Dawn quotes a source with knowledge of the trial, saying they signed confessions that they'd been too lenient. Research suggests people who look after their hearts could live significantly longer without suffering other major diseases. Experts studied the heart health of more than 135,000 British adults, including their dietary, smoking, sleeping and exercise habits. Researchers found that women with the best heart health were likely to live almost a decade longer without cancer, dementia, diabetes or heart disease than women in the worst group. Men with the healthiest hearts could expect to live almost six years longer, free of the four chronic diseases. You're listening to the news on RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Hey, welcome back to Money Talk. And if you're surprised that we're going for another half hour, this is the new deal. I'm Andrew Wurr, coming to grips with the new cues, the new formats. Uh, my man, James Lung, is saving my Canadian bacon in the sound booth today. Thank you very much. Carolyn Wright producing. Let us know what you think about the new format and my lead-in and the Hindenburg puns on our Facebook page. Uh, you can get our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In a few minutes, Carolyn Wright will be joined by Stephanie Lung, CIO of Stashaway, to take a look at why so many people are saving too much and investing too little. Then, in around 15 minutes, we'll get a view from Japan with Tokyo-based author and journalist William Pesek. But first, some more of our big news stories today. Uh, first, the big deal between the EU and Britain over the status of Northern Ireland has been struck. Being able to read the fine text yet, the fine print of it. The only thing I would say is that those who are making their way through this document are showing at the moment, anyway, some quite positive, optimistic uh, signs that this could go through. But that's a big if and a big but. So some of the big changes that have been announced, which I think are really, really very important and are probably part of the reason why this seems to be going down so well, is that the vast majority of checks that were going to be carried out or are being carried out currently from goods going from the mainland UK, so Wales, England and Scotland, into Northern Ireland, the vast majority of those, some 90-odd percent, are going to be scrapped. So that is obviously going to speed up and make uh, um, a journey much, much faster for businesses that have to um, sell into Northern Ireland or want to try to sell into Northern Ireland. Um, goods that are destined to go into Northern Ireland and then into the Republic of Ireland and therefore into the EU will still be subject to normal checks. And when I've been talking to you before, Vicky, we've talked about these red and green channels. And that was exactly, indeed, the very language that this government had used. So we were correct in making that assumption uh, last week and the week before. 
Um, now, also, uh, there are no new requirements if you've got a pet uh, that was moving from Northern Ireland into Britain. Uh, in the past, believe it or not, even though we're one country, uh, there was a problem with taking your pet from Northern Ireland into the UK and vice versa. Um, and indeed, parcels will not be subject to full customs declarations either. That is a big change. Medicines as well for use in Northern Ireland will be still now approved by the UK regulator. The European Medicines Agency will not have a role anymore. Uh, the UK can now collect taxes on uh, alcoholic drinks uh, if they're for immediate consumption. Um, and uh, it looks like as well there is this mechanism, slightly complicated mechanism, but a mechanism that will effectively put a, uh, a pause, put a break on anything that the EU uh, uh, basically agrees with that the uh, politicians in Northern Ireland don't like. They are able to potentially raise a veto, but there's a lot of fine print to go through. Thank you very much to our UK correspondent, Gavin Gray, for bringing us that report from Old Blighty. Um, we're launching one of our new segments as part of the expanded money talk right now. The new segment is called Your Money. And today... Carolyn Wright asks whether we are missing out on getting the best returns on our money. Good morning. Today I'm looking at whether people are stashing away too much of their cash as savings and being overcautious. Joining me is Stephanie Lung, Chief Investment Officer of Stash Away. Now, this is a premise of yours that you're saying that people are saving too much rather than investing. Tell me why you think this is happening. Yeah, Carolyn, I think uh, you brought up a very, very valid uh, issue or, or just kind of phenomenon we see not just in Hong Kong, but also across Asia as well. Um, we think that actually when we look at the data, um, actually compared to the US or Europe, uh, Asians and people in Hong Kong tend to save a lot more. Um, and those savings tends to be uh, sitting in a bank. Um, earning very, very little interest. Now, of course, we've had some interest rate increases in the past 12 months, so uh, we're, we're, we're not earning like zero, but uh, slightly more than that. But if you look at actually investment returns, uh, you can actually get a lot higher return if you kind of stay invested for the long term. So, for example, uh, if you look at the bank interest rates right now, uh, depending on which bank you go to, uh, you may get kind of uh, interest rates in, in the range of maybe 1% to 3%, depending on if you put it into fixed deposits or not. Uh, but if you look at the investor returns uh, for uh, equities in the past 30 years, let's say take U.S. equities as an example, uh, on an annual basis, you actually would be able to get 10% return over a period of 30 years. So that's a very very significant difference now to your question about why i mean in asia uh we tend to see a, a lot more kind of uh, uh people leaving their the savings in bank deposits rather than investing it uh, mm -hmm. i think there's several reasons i think the first one is because uh, historically if you look at the i guess the the investment choice of um, uh, most people uh, in Hong Kong in particular, we tend to kind of think about investment as just selecting a few equities. So, for example, uh, maybe selecting uh, Alibaba versus Tencent versus like Bank of China. Uh, and I think the if you if you look at the whole kind of investment universe or or kind of the um, the available instruments for investing, uh, that's a very very narrow slice. 
So uh, even within equities, uh, we can actually look beyond Hong Kong, China and think about investing in uh, other markets. And actually, as you expand your kind of uh, investment universe, equities is not just not the only thing that you can invest in, right? Like there's uh, bonds and uh, different types of bonds. And in fact, if we look at uh, today, like US short data bonds are actually yielding uh, around close to 5%. So the the investment universe uh, tended to be quite narrow in, in, in Hong Kong and in Asia. And that's why uh, most people think about investment as sort of like um, uh, risky bets or more thing, or more in terms of uh, uh, closer to gambling or closer to trading than investing. So I guess I, you brought a very good point about uh, stashing away your, your cash, right? Because yeah. um, to us, the, the reason why we have stash away as our name is because with when we think about investment, it should be quite similar to uh, how you think about kind of uh, putting away your wealth uh, in a bank. Now, of course, like investments are inherently higher risk. So, I mean, you do get ups and downs, but over a long time period, um, the 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 I guess the, um, the 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 line always kind of go from uh, lower left to uh, upper right, which means that if you invest in asset classes, so for example, equities or bonds, uh, over the long term, uh, you, you 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 pretty much make money. But of course, during that course, in in terms of like getting to the 30-year time horizon, there will be ups and downs. Like equities go up and down more, like bonds go up and down less. Um, and it's important to think about asset allocation. So, how much do you put in like bonds versus equities, so that uh, some of the asset classes actually balance out each other, so that you don't get like that much up and downs. So it's kind that's of. Called, it's all about yeah. ma managing your risk, isn't it? And where you, you kind exactly. of be more cautious and where you, you be a bit more, take more of a risk. Yes, exactly. And and how you think about kind of the allocation uh, among different asset classes. So, so that's what we call asset allocation. And I think the, the like that brings me to the second point about why I think there's uh, too much cash in a bank is because traditionally uh, it's, not very easy to get access to asset allocation services. Right. So by that, I mean like some financial advisors advising you on, oh, right now, uh, given a macro environment, here is how much you should put in bonds versus how much you should put in equities versus how much you should put in cash, for example. Yep. And of course, if you are a wealthy individual, uh, you can open up a, uh, a private bank account. It's much easier. Uh, and there will be, exactly, right? there will be like, professional financial advisors telling you, okay, now you should allocate maybe like more to equities, less to bonds. But for most people, actually, it's very, very hard to get access to that service. And that's why um, uh, you leave most money in the bank because you don't know, oh, like, how much should I actually put into different asset classes? So the reason why we set up StashAway is also uh, to kind of use, make use of technology uh, make use of like the 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 mobile apps, like the um, uh, the the web apps, so that we can offer this as allocation service at a very low cost to many many more people. So, so and that, I think that's yeah. So that's it. it. It's all about kind of finding a service that works for you and and offers the kind of range of investment products that you would like at a cost that you, you feel is acceptable and you don't have to have a crazy amount of capital to kick off with. Yes, exactly. And for example, I mean, a in Hong Kong, 
the to set up an account, you only need to uh, put in ten thousand uh, Hong Kong dollars. Uh, and and actually, I mean, we we don't impose a minimum balance as well. So it's um, uh, it's a very very low barrier way to get access to these asset allocation services that traditionally has only been available to uh, uh, very wealthy individuals. So I think we're unlocking this kind of service for most people. And hopefully through that, uh, we can help more people to move the assets uh, from just, I mean, predominantly bank deposits earning very little to uh, longer term investments, uh, which can get much higher return over a long period of time. So obviously you're talking about moving some of your savings away. Now, I guess a lot of people have been worried about what we might call rainy days over the last few years. You know, the pandemic has been pretty hard on a lot of people. They've been, you know, a lot of jobs have gone and things like that. So we all have a bit of a fund in case the worst happens. So have you got any advice on how much you might want to keep in your savings as against looking into these options for investing? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great, great question. And uh, we actually have done some study and analysis on that. And we do have some, uh, I think, like, pretty useful advice. So I guess in in terms of cash, because it's it's uh, earning very little return. So you don't want to keep too much of that. However, as Caroline, you've mentioned, I mean, there will be rainy days and we need to keep some amount of cash in case. I mean, the worst case happens, for example, uh, if if if. If you're working, if you uh, all of a sudden lose your job, you need that access to cash, or if there's some just any family emergencies, etc. So, as a rule of thumb, uh, what what we found is that I mean, about six months of uh, your cash needs is a good kind of um, uh, uh, kind of benchmark for keeping uh, that emergency fund. The reason being, if you think about kind of all these emergencies, I think uh, it's these are emergencies that require uh, usually um, means that you 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 may lose your majority like the the major source of income. Yeah. However, you still need to pay like the daily bills, right? You need, still need to pay your rent, yes. uh, your kids' education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, the first thing that uh, we actually teach people when we teach like we actually teach quite a bit of uh, financial um, kind of um, uh, uh, personal finance education as well. So the first thing that we uh, ask people to do is to actually I mean, take an account of your expenses. Okay, so, so actually your own budget kind of a thing. Exactly, exactly. So understand kind of how much roughly you spend every month. And uh, if you take that amount, uh, multiply that by about six um, by six months, then I mean, that is the amount of cash that you should keep. Because typically, I mean, it, six months gives you a pretty good period of time to work out uh, some of these issues, for example, find a new job or yeah. or find an extra source of income. So, uh, so that I mean, actually gives you the peace of mind without sacrificing uh, returns that you could have gotten uh, with that cash. So, I think that is a, a pretty good rule of thumb to think about. So it's kind of very much start out sensibly, but then you know maybe be a bit more adventurous. You know, you've been very cautious, but yeah, you might do better if you. Try something new. Yes, and uh, and also it's very very important to find um, a a trusted partner or advisor because most of us actually, I mean, don't work in finance or we don't need to be spending a lot of time looking at our investments. Yeah, I think we all or we would all agree that I mean time is very very precious. Oh yes, um, and uh, yeah, that frees you up to do a lot of other things.
Thank you so much for having the conversation about getting more adventurous with your savings and going a bit more wild with some investments. Well, sensibly wild anyway. Thank you, Stephanie, for joining me today. All right, we're back on the new and expanded Money Talk, and we are looking to the economy of the rising sun as we welcome William Pesek, who's a Tokyo-based author and journalist and Money Talk stalwart. Uh, William, welcome back to the show. Unless, yeah, we got him. William, good morning. Good morning. Ohio, Genki desu? <laughs> Genki desu. Good, I'm glad you got your Genki on. Okay, um... A little while ago, we had a big surprise and uh, with the Bank of Japan announcing that they were not going to go with the deputy of the Bank of Japan and they were going to bring in a, a, a new guy, uh, Ueda, and uh, he's been out there making a few statements. He's, he seems to be signaling uh, lately that the, he, he wants to continue on a stimulative path for the Japanese economy as far as the Bank of Japan is concerned. Uh, what, what's your take on these? Well, first of all, can you give us the outline of his latest uh, pronouncements and what that means for, for Japan? Well, first off, you know, Oueda to me is a very good choice. You know, Prime Minister Kishida, frankly, has made a lot of lackluster choices for his economic team. His finance minister is someone that even Japanese are Googling right now, and no one really knows who he is or what he does. So in that context, Oueda is a good choice. Uh, MIT graduate, he basically is a you know contemporary of Ben Bernanke and Stanley Fisher and, and Larry Summers. And so from an international standpoint, he was a good choice. However, I think recently people assumed that he would come in and be very different than Haruhiko Kuroda, the current BOJ governor. They thought he would be the guy to finally, finally find an exit from 23 years of quantitative easing. And Ueda, in very, very stark fashion in the last few days, has said, no, um, continuity is my thing, and I think we might even need to ease more than we have in recent years, not taper or raise interest rates. So for people who have been bidding up the yen in recent days, they're, uh, they're, they're having a rough week. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you're talking, I mean, Ueda himself was a bit of a choice out of left field, but he's preaching continuity. You're telling me that these other people in the financial world uh, for Japan are, are, you know, were not uh, appointments that were expected. What is, you know, what is the prime minister up to? What, what is this, you know, is, is he seen as he's kind of making... Uh, crazy moves or is he crazy like a fox well it's more the opposite i think that the prime minister's approval rating is in the mid-20s which is the danger zone for japanese prime ministers they don't tend to last very long after their approval rating moves into this territory so prime minister kishida is struggling to stay in power and that means continuity in the economy if we see anything from the boj that shocks the markets that shocks interest rates that in some ways raises government yields in this environment, it's probably the worst thing the prime minister wants. So when you look at the comments from future BOJ Governor Oueda in recent days, he's giving politicians exactly what they want. He's letting them know that I'm, I'm not crazy, I'm not Paul Volcker, vulgar, I'm not going to be raising interest rates in ways that make your life and your elections to come more difficult. I mean, I think Japan does need a change. Japan needs to extricate itself from 23 years of free money, but the political system is not ready for it, and I think that's what we're seeing in Tokyo this week. Okay. Uh, and, I mean, does the Prime Minister himself have an economic background? Like, Does he understand all this, or is he going to turn it over to these guys and, and hope that they deliver the goods for him? 
basically, you know, Prime Minister Kashida is is basically a uh, you know he, he's basically a protege of former Prime Minister Abe. Mm-hmm. Abe had nearly eight years in power and a great plan to revitalize Japan. He did very little, and so you have now Prime Minister Kashida, who's looking at the wreckage of that era, trying to figure out how can I move forward and shake up the economy. But a year and a half in, he has put no wins on the board. And when he does talk about changes to, say, the tax code, changes to regulations to increase Japan's startup scene, everything is like, well, you know, give me, give me ideas, give me uh, recommendations next year. <laughs> so there's, there's very little urgency on the ground. So that's why the BOJ is still the only game in town. The BOJ is basically managing the economy. And the political system here is just saying to the new BOJ governor, uh, you know, don't mess things up for us. Uh, continuity is important. Yeah, I know Abe, Abe, Abenomics was supposed to be about his three arrows, but I think he never took them out of his quiver the way he thought he would. Um, you know, something else that might be good for the Japanese economy uh, was an announcement on uh, relaxing border controls for passengers from China starting on Wednesday. What's the deal with that, and is it, is it really going to have the impact that people are hoping for? Well, it'll certainly have a big impact. I'm not sure it'll have the impact people are hoping for. I mean, you will suddenly see you know, hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of mainlanders coming into Japan. Kyoto is very happy. Um, Hokkaido is very happy. Kyushu Island is very happy because you will see this influx of tourism, this influx of of Chinese tourists spending money. You know, Korea, you see Korea as well, uh, reducing um, barriers to to Chinese tourism. And so it'll help. I'm not sure you're going to see the the, the kinds of numbers that Japan is hoping for. Certainly not the pre-pandemic numbers that we saw in 2019, but, you know, for an economy that needs some, you know, a bit of a jolt, you know, domestic demand-wise, it is a positive sign. I think a lot of Japanese are, you know, looking around, hoping that this doesn't lead to, you know, sort of a next wave of COVID infections, as, you know, Japan has found when, when they let in waves of foreigners from anywhere. You do see increases in COVID numbers. But for the moment, it is a positive sign that Japan is opening up and moving beyond the trauma of the last few years, and the economy will get a bit of a boost from it, hopefully. Hmm. So back in October, uh, November, I traveled to Thailand and Japan, both of which did not have a mask mandate. Uh, but in both those countries, everybody was wearing masks everywhere. I hear Thai- the, the people of Thailand have given theirs up. What about in Japan? Are you guys still walking around wearing masks everywhere, even though it's not legally required? Um, now, you know, people more and more when they're walking from the train station to their homes in the evening when things are quieter, they might get crazy and take their mask off. But if you go to central Tokyo at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday, um, 98% of people, 99, even maybe 100% of people are wearing masks. Mm. Indoors, everyone wears masks 24-7. Um, you know, I'm talking about public spaces. Outdoors, you know, mask wearing is still very high. On the trains, everyone's wearing a mask. On the buses, everyone's wearing a mask. So I think the Japanese, they're not listening to the government. They're just thinking about their personal health, and they're just realizing that, you know, maybe the risks are not completely gone at this point. So they're just, uh, they're being cautious. And I think, you know, for a lot of Japanese, they feel that, you know, as an American, um, it's a very, my my people, it's a very different uh, scenario. But I think the Japanese feel, if I need to do this small gesture to keep myself and my neighbor safe, not the biggest deal in the world, I guess. Yeah, I have to admit, when I was there, the only people I saw in Tokyo not wearing masks were incredibly well-turned-out women in the Ginza. Not Shinbashi next door, (laughs) 
But in the Ginza... Well, their, their makeup gets messed up. So, I, I think that was it. I think, yeah, I, I kind of took that as being a, a bit of a makeup thing. Um, finally, Japan thinks they're going to be attracting more highly skilled foreign workers. They've got a new visa pathway. But, I mean, um, they're competing with, you know, Western countries that have long been on the march trying to ag- aggressively attract talent. They're competing with Singapore, Hong Kong. I mean, what are their prospects? Well, Japan's got a very big problem. And actually, Japan has three problems. English, English, English. Mm-hmm. Um, that really is the issue. I mean, there's a lot of barriers as to why foreigners don't set up shop here. Um, taxes are high. Regulations are difficult. This is not a place that a young entrepreneur comes and says, hey, I'm going to start a company. They're going to go to Singapore. They're going to go to Hong Kong. But the English issue is something that Japan really has to grapple with. The English proficiency here is not great. And even corporate web- websites, government websites, government officials, they just don't do a very good job here of saying to people, look, come to our, you know, come to our country, open a company here, and we'll work with you to help you figure out a way to live without having to go for Japanese classes 10 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. And that really is a growing pain Japan has to grapple with. Okay, well, uh, we're definitely going to keep an eye on that one. I'm, I'm not making the move up there anytime soon, but uh, I, I would, if only to come and see William Pesek, our favorite Tokyo-based... <laughs> All right. Anytime. But you betcha. Thank you to William Pesek, Tokyo-based author and journalist and a regular here on Money Talk on RTHK3. And uh, we're going to have a quick look at the markets before we head out today. Uh, looking at the Nikkei, why not? We just had a view from Japan. Things are looking good. The Kospi is also on the up, almost up almost 1% already, uh, which, well, we'll see if they can keep it going. The ASX is up half a percent, also good. Uh, our Hong Kong Hang Seng Futures Index, uh, we're expecting good things today with a 0.3% rise. Tomorrow's show, we'll have Richard Harris joined by Stuart Aldcroft, uh, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant and RTHK's International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. Today's producer and presenter was Caroline Wright and my man on the other side of the glass walls, James Lung. Next up, back chat with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. Weather mainly fine. The temperature is now 16 degrees Celsius, 72% humidity. We're going to go to the news with Tom Harding. 